So how many are enjoying this sermon series that we're in called The Story? It's been good, yeah. Hey, it's not too late to jump in. It's not too late to get on board, to catch up. So what I'm loving about this sermon series is that it is a reminder that each of us share this same deepest desire, and that is to know God and to be known by Him. And This series reminds us, too, that the more time that we spend in the story, right, the more time we spend in his word, the more we come to know God and to feel known by him. And I just want to stop there and say to you tonight, no matter who you are, hear that tonight. God wants to be known by you. In addition to that, God wants to know you. Not just because he, he dreamt of you before you were in your mother's womb. He knows the number of hairs on your head, right? He stands outside of time. He's walked with you every day of your life. He waits in your tomorrow. He wants, to be, he wants to know you because you've said, hey, God, will you come hang out with me, right? Will you spend time with me? Because we've invited him in. It's different. How many know it's different? It's another step. It's a totally different kind of relationship when we invite God to be a part of our life, to take the throne of our heart, and we begin to get to know God in that way. And so we kick this series off, if you missed it two weeks ago, with the story of the beginning of creation. We're using this Bible called This Story, if you're not familiar with it, and it basically reads like a novel using the actual words of the Bible. And so we kicked it off at the beginning, right? In the Garden of Eden, right? Houston, we have a problem, right? With the reality, what we realize right out of the gate is that man has a sin problem. And no matter how many chances he's given, no matter how many rules humanity is given, we continue to mess it up. And we jumped from there to the beginning of the New Testament last week. Again, if you missed it, it's on our podcast, our YouTube channel. Check it out, catch up. But last week we touched on Jesus's coming and how he fulfilled all of these prophecies in the New Testament. And Fred challenged us to show up. You guys remember? Buckle up. And anybody? Open up, open up, right? And so that portion of scripture, we wrap up in Luke 2.52, Jesus is about 12 years old, right? His parents go back to Jerusalem. They thought he was with the group. He wasn't. They go back. They find him sitting with the teachers of the law. And what we're told from there for 18 years, this is all we have, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And then we get to pick up with the beginning of Jesus's ministry in this next chapter, so to speak, this next portion of the story in session 23. And so what we know in those 18 years, that's all we know. What we, what we think we know from scholars and theologians, right, is that Jesus, he, he physically grew up. He learned a trade, which was of his uh, father, his earthly father. Joseph was a carpenter. So we know here that he did good. He grew, he matured in favor with God and man. And then we pick up with John the Baptist, right? This kind of crazy freak show prophet out in the wilderness declaring this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And from there we see Jesus come out and if you haven't read it, it's so powerful. I'm not gonna read it. I'm gonna kind of drop in tonight on different portions of this scripture. But Jesus comes out, he needs to be baptized. John's like, I'm not worthy. And Jesus talks him into it and says, no, it needs to be done. And we find in Matthew 3, verse 13, it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. 
And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, I can't imagine what this was like, right? This is my son with whom I am well pleased. In this moment, all three entities of the Godhead, God the Father speaking from heaven, Jesus coming up out of the water, the Holy Spirit ascending like a dove, all three entities of the Godhead confirm the divinity of Jesus in that moment. And then the Bible tells us that the Spirit led him into the wilderness. And we know his, his divinity was confirmed and immediately his humanity was tested. And we know the outcome of that because he was victorious over his human nature. And we're not going to land on any of that tonight, but we, we, God is setting up this story. He is unfolding the story of the redemption of mankind. And now it's go time. Jesus leaves the wilderness. It says the angels ministered to him. He begins to assemble his team. He begins to call his disciples to him. And he is about to, tonight, what we're going to look at, he is about to begin his public ministry. How many know that introductions and first impressions are important? Yes? How many know that? What are some times in life, interaction, I'm not going to walk down there like Fred. I just don't have that much energy. Um, but um, I'm also afraid of these steps because it's when I fall, not if I fall. And we've been here how many years? Six years I haven't fallen yet? Mm -hmm. But tell me, tell me some times in life when the introduction or the first impression matters. Saber, I saw a hand. Did you? Job interview, for sure. Somebody else? Yeah. Meeting the parents. You've, you've met Grace's parents. You're good. You're in like Flint. You brought the dog and everything, Adam. Who else? Somebody else. Another time that first impressions or an introduction matters. First date. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. I'm not going to take the time tonight to tell you about the time of my first date when I was 15 years old and I was finally allowed. I had a guy that I liked and we were really good friends, but we liked each other. You know how that is? And I wasn't allowed to ride in a car by myself to anything with him until I was 15. And I wasn't going to tell you and I won't tell you all the details, but how many remember cars with the automated seatbelt thing on a track, right? So he came to pick me up in my driveway, was being a gentleman, opened the door, my cute, I remember, it was a pink cotton, cute little mini skirt, I was so excited, we were going to a group event, we weren't going to some, you know, exclusive date, but I was finally allowed to ride in a car with him, by myself, and my parents were praying that I wouldn't get pregnant, it's all worked out fine, but I somehow remember him opening the door for me and then me getting, trying to get in and somehow getting tangled in the seatbelt track thing with one leg in. I'm on my back on the driveway, my other leg dangling in the air. So needless to say, first impressions matter. And that didn't work out. But where you meet, it matters when we're introducing ourselves, right? where you meet them, how you present yourself. And so as we dive into the beginning of Jesus's ministry tonight, it matters who he chooses to interact with, who he reveals himself to, what he says, the environments he chooses to show up in. And that's where we're headed tonight. And so in preparing for this sermon, you know, I've been a student of God's word for a long time. And so I was like, Holy Spirit, will you help me read this session 22 titled Jesus Begins His Ministry? Help me read it 
like I don't know the stories, right? Like with fresh eyes. That's hard to do. How many know it's hard to do that when you know the end of the story? But, but Holy Spirit, will you help me read it with fresh eyes as if I don't know the characters and the players and I don't know what's going to happen? And will you speak to my heart? And so I sat down on this morning and I read it like three times through. And I was struck so vividly by three things that we see as Jesus begins to introduce himself to the world. They are. Jesus came in supernatural power. Jesus made it very clear he was the only way to life. And Jesus cared deeply for the needs of people. And I want to unpack those truths tonight and how they impact our lives today. So Jesus came in supernatural power. Like, like I'm so interested how Jesus did life those 18 years. Is anybody else interested? Like, like when he began his public ministry, he starts walking around town and demons start calling out to him. Did that happen when he was in high school? Like, I want to know, you know, did he, was he sitting in the temple and could he read people's thoughts? Like, you know, how did he manage his divinity in tension with his humanity? I don't know about you, but I'm really interested in that. But what we do see is once it's go time, which is where we pick up tonight, his, his, his uh, power is leaking out. It's time, right? It's no longer hidden. We pick up with the first miracle, which we may be familiar with. It's the wedding that took place in Cana of Galilee. And I'm just going to read you this scripture. Um, it comes out of John 2. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. I think that they were probably good friends here because his mom was not only attending the wedding, but she, like, had inside information on how things were going, right? The administration of this wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And he says to her, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, you don't talk to your mom that way anymore. But the modern day vernacular, because I have adult sons, is totally, this is totally what Derek was, he would be like, bruh, simmer it down. Mom, right? Like, they call me bruh. That's a thing. B-R-U-H, I think. But like, I can see Jesus is like, mom, I got it, right? It's my time is not, like, I got it under control. And then I love Mary here because she basically ignores him. I love that. So Derek, there you go. Moms can ignore their adult sons. His mother says to the servants, because how many know Mary has been sitting on this secret for 30 years? She knows he's the son of God. She knows that he's divine. She knows he's on mission. She's been waiting with bated breath for, for this to be unleashed. And I think she knew. I think she knew that it was time. So she ignores what Jesus says, and she says, just do whatever he tells you, because it's time. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons, big old jars. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. He wasn't dramatic. He wasn't crazy. He just showed up to this wedding. They needed more wine. They did this, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drew the water knew. I think they were probably freaking out, like, this is not our job. We're going to bring him water to him. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. 
And what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. He's, he's on mission and he's starting to have power at every turn. He goes from there and he's teaching in the synagogue. And how many know the next story? A demon-possessed man cries out, I know who you are. What do you want to do with us? And Jesus rebukes the demon and commands it to come out of the man. And the man is set free. So word starts to spread. This Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, we know him. He's the kid down the street. He is operating in an authority and a power that doesn't make sense with his station in life, right? With his education, with who we know him to be. And so he begins to just go about life. He shows up at his friend Simon's house. Mother-in-law has a fever. He heals her. A line starts to form, right? That line quickly becomes, as we hear all through the Gospels, right, a massive crowd everywhere he goes. And then we land in the story of the paralytic man who had faithful friends. There's no more line. There's this massive crowd. They want to get their friend in front of Jesus. And so we know the story. They're so ingenious, right? They go on the roof of the, of the building that Jesus is in. They cut a hole and they lower Jesus down. And we know that Jesus heals that man and he forgives his sins. It's the first time in scripture that Jesus forgives sin. Crowd's going crazy crowds going wild. Jesus's power is showing up at every turn. And we read in Matthew 4, 23 to 25, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. Those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. The scripture just seems to indicate that everyone who came to him received a touch of power and was changed, experienced the miraculous. The miracles of Jesus cannot be separated from his message. How many know that we're good at doing that in the modern church? There are whole groups of Christians rather within Christianity who are passionate about the message of Jesus, yet they believe the miracles of Jesus are long gone. They were for a different time and a different day. And I want to remind my church family, I want to remind us tonight that that is not what we see in scripture. We don't see anywhere where God's Jesus' power is left for a certain time or put in a box. That Jesus' teaching ministry and his power ministry go hand in hand all throughout Scripture. And they should not be separated. Jesus still comes in power today. Jesus still miraculously can heal. He still does the miraculous in forgiving sins. He still sets the demons free, right? He still comes to each one of us today with the authority to make us whole. What is it that you need from the Jesus who comes not just with a message of life and hope, but with the power to back it up? Amen? The other thing that I'm struck with, number two, Jesus made it so clear he was the only way to life. It's very telling the conversations that John chooses to include 
when he's introducing Jesus here in the scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We see two conversations that I want to compare and contrast. There's one in John 3 with Nicodemus, and then there's a conversation with a Samaritan woman in John 4. Again, first impressions matter. Introductions matter. Pay attention. Nicodemus, we're told, was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin. So he had incredible theological training. He was also a scholar in the law, likely one of the best scholars of his day. I would argue he was the ultimate insider in, Jew, in, in Jewish culture in his time. Then we meet the Samaritan woman. Just by the fact she's called the Samaritan woman, how many know she is different than Nicodemus? She, we don't even know her name. Do you think it's Linda? Karen? I don't know. I was having fun with it in my notes, but I won't go there. We know very little about her, but we know that she was a Samaritan, which tells us that she was despised by the Jews. She was an outcast already. They had a very cantankerous relationship. We also know that she was a woman, a nameless woman. We know that that brings her further down, right, on the ladder, because she would have been owned by the men in her life. She would have been the property of her father, her brother, her uncle, her husband, whoever it was. We also know because of the conversation, and I'm not going to read both of these conversations tonight. I'm just going to cherry pick some of the points that we should pay attention to. We know that she's five times divorced and that the man that she's currently living with is not her husband. I would argue that she is the ultimate outsider. Nicodemus, it's important to note that he sought Jesus out. He came looking for Jesus. The Bible says that he came looking for Jesus in the dark of night. Under the cloak of blackness, he didn't want to be seen looking for Jesus, but he was looking for Jesus. He wanted answers. The Samaritan woman, on the other hand, bumped into Jesus. She was not looking for Jesus. She bumped into him by accident in the middle of the day when, it, when the well would have been deserted because the women in the village would go to the well at the beginning of the day, the women of good repute. The women were married with families and could hold their head high. They would communally go out to the well before the sun got up, before it was hot. They would get the water they needed for the day. They would return in the evening when the sun was setting to get the water they needed to care for their family through the night. This woman intentionally went in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, because she didn't want to bump into anybody she knew. I believe Nicodemus was trying to preserve his reputation. I believe the Samaritan woman was trying to preserve any dignity she had left. I believe Nicodemus was avoiding the shame of association with this upstart rabbi from Galilee where the Samaritan woman was wearing the shame of her lifestyle that she could not escape. And to both of them, in John 3 and John 4, we find that Jesus spoke with incredible candor, incredible honesty, and he claimed to both that he was the secret to eternal life. He was eternal life. To Nicodemus, he used Old Testament imagery that a law expert would understand. I'm not going to read you the whole conversation. It's an extensive conversation, but certainly we know part of the conversation is John 3.16. For God so loved the world, Nicodemus, that he gave his only son 
that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And he goes on to tell Nicodemus, I am eternal life. To the Samaritan woman, they talked not about law. There was no Old Testament imagery of the serpent on the pole and Moses. and She didn't know any of that. She's not even a Jew. She's there to get some water. So Jesus talks to her about water. He says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Right? Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water. And they go on to have a lengthy exchange. And then she finally says, the woman says, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Right? She's kind of like, I know you're a Jew, and I know what you're saying. I've been exposed to it. And then Jesus declares the clearest declaration of who he is. He says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. How many know that John was intentional, including both of these conversations, both of these introductions of Jesus, showing us that it does not matter who you are, whether you're at the top of the economic ladder, the financial ladder, the social ladder, the religious ladder, or you're at the very bottom, he is still the way to life. He is the only way to life. And how many know he was then and he is now? Jesus still is the only way to life, no matter if you've lived a life of repute or whether you've done horrible, ugly things. Jesus says to each one of us still, I am the way to life. The path is the same. The access is the same. The hope that I can give is the same. The forgiveness I have to offer is the same. There is nothing too far for me. Third, Jesus cared for the needs of people. It's powerful. It's life-changing. Jesus saw people for who they really were, right? He, he, he saw through their masks how they were presenting themselves. And I find it so interesting that Jesus met the, the most urgent need of each person. If we pay attention, he met the most urgent need. We already talked about the wedding in Cana. There was a need there, and it was for more wine, and he created wine. Nicodemus came looking for answers, and he met Nicodemus where he was with theology, with Old Testament imagery, with answers. The Samaritan woman wasn't looking for answers. I believe she was looking for value. She was looking for dignity, and Jesus gave that to her. Gave that to her so much so that she left everything at the well, right? She ran back to the village and she said, hey, come meet this man who told me everything I've ever done. They all knew what she'd done. And they're like, what? We have to come meet this man. And she introduced her whole village to Jesus. And we know that Jesus spent multiple days there and many became believers. The demon-possessed man needed deliverance. Jesus set him free. Simon's mother-in-law had a fever. He healed her. The leper, this gets me every time, the leper was healed. But do you know what I think the leper really needed? Was a touch from Jesus. Matthew is very specific. In Matthew 8.32, it says, Jesus reaching out his hand, he touched the man. As a mom, this gets me every time. 
How many know that as humans, we're born to crave touch, right? We, know, we have the science now. We have the experiments that we know that if young children are not touched on a regular basis, right? As soon as a baby's born, they lay it on the, the chest of the mother. Human touch is so important. And if children aren't touched enough and held enough and receive that, that there's actual developmental delays that cannot be recovered in their brain, right? I think about if you had a, a leprous child, your child contracted leprosy, back then, there was no cure. And it was so contagious that they, that they had to take their child or their family member. They had to bring them outside of the village to a leper colony. And do you know what those lepers were sustained by? They were sustained only by the charity of the family members who brought them there. They lived an impoverished life. They had enough to maybe get by. They took care of each other. They created their own community, but they were never touched. Because if you look at pictures of someone with leprosy, their skin is like tissue paper. And if you touch, you start to bleed. The one thing that the leper needed, he needed to be healed, but he needed to be touched. And I can't imagine what it was like for Jesus to lay his hand on him and look at him and say, I know what your greatest need is. You're never going to have to live without touch again. And then he healed him. Jesus cared for people's needs. We also see this as Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners. I think that's so funny and so irrelevant for us today. But, like, I was trying to think of who would be those people now, but I just don't want to offend anyone, so I won't say anything. But I just think it's so funny, tax collectors and sinners. But to, to get an understanding of these people. These were the people that like, they weren't like, like falsely accused. No, they really, really were idiots. You know, they really were doing bad things. <laughs> the tax collectors were ripping people off, right? They were, they were stealing things that weren't theirs. They were doing bad things. And then this whole bucket of sinners, who knows what they were doing, right? Think of all the bad things, all those people. Jesus was thronged by tax collectors and sinners. We read in Matthew 9, it says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, which is Matthew, he was a tax collector and he became a disciple of Jesus. So he's back at his house. Many tax collectors and sinners, many bad people, right? People of ill repute, people that were despised in the community, people that were like outcasts, were eating with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, right, the church leaders, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? Why does he eat with these people that are doing bad things? And Jesus, on hearing this, said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I believe these tax collectors and sinners had a need, and that was to be validated by someone who was truthful and honest because they were the opposite of that. And Jesus did that by being their friend, by hanging out with them, by spending time with them. Jesus, all through his ministry, as he's introducing himself, he is marked by kindness. He is marked by friendship. He is marked by seeing. He is marked by stopping what he's doing and being interrupted and meeting the need. Speaking the truth, but in a way that invited people to be honest and not run from the truth. 
he, there was a purity of motive that clearly the religious leaders couldn't, didn't have, couldn't buy at the store that Jesus had. It made them very nervous. Jesus has always and will always care for the needs of people, right? This should be both a reason for us to want to run to Jesus with our needs, but it should also be the biggest impetus for us to grab everyone we know with confidence, knowing that we can bring them to Jesus. And no matter what their need is, whether it's financial, physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, whatever their need is, we can bring people to Jesus and he will meet it because he met every need that he encountered as he introduced himself to people. So as I invite the band to come forward and as we wrap up, what do these truths mean for us today? I have good news for you. Hebrews 13.8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what does that mean for us? It means that Jesus still comes in power. Jesus still is the only way to life. Jesus still cares for the needs of people. And when these truths intersect the reality of our lives, I believe that we will live differently. When we begin to have a reawakened encounter with the truth that Jesus still comes in power, it changes how we pray, it changes how we live, it changes what we ask for, it changes where we invite Jesus into our lives, it changes everything. When we have a reawakened uh, encounter with the truth that Jesus still is the only way to life, I'll tell you what it does. It shuts down all those voices that tell us we're not good enough, that we have to somehow earn it, that we have to get our act together, that we have to somehow be good enough. Like, no, it silences those voices and we're free to step in to receive the grace of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. We don't have to try anymore. It doesn't mean that we don't go on a journey of transformation, but we know that we can never earn it. He is the only way to life. I need to quit trying. I need to accept Jesus for who he says he is. He is the only way to life. And that reality that Jesus still cares for the needs of people should be a salve to our souls because how many know we live in a world that is full of need? Each one of us has a list Every single person we encounter has a list, a depth of need, a despair, places that we need Jesus to come and heal. We need Jesus to set us free. We need Jesus, right, to validate us and speak worth into those broken places of our life. And Jesus can still do that today. So I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to just take a moment to respond as we sing a song for a few minutes. And I just want to invite you to encounter this Jesus in a fresh way. One of the things I love about, about a friend, someone I know well, excuse me, getting over a cold. One of the things I, I love about hanging out with a friend that I, that I know well is when they like tell you something that, like you learn something you didn't know about them and it surprises you. Have y'all had that happen? The other night it happened. Fred was telling a story. We were with a group of people 
We've been married over 26 years, so I can pretty much finish his sentences. We've heard all the stories, you know what I'm saying? And he's just telling this story and I was like, what? I didn't know that, oh my gosh. And on the way home, I was like, tell me more about this. So interesting, so fascinating, right? Wow, that's so fabulous. And I love that when it's someone you know well, it's someone that you kind of know their quirks, you know their story, and then you learn something new and it kind of, how many of you know, it kind of adjusts something, right? It reframes, oh, that's so interesting. And as I was praying about how these truths apply to our life, that's what I felt like. You're gonna have a moment with God as we respond to this. I feel like God wants to reintroduce His power to some of you. And it's gonna be like, what? I didn't know you wanted to bring your power to that part of my life. What? I didn't know that that thinking was wrong and was undercutting the reality that you are the only way to life. What? I didn't know that I could bring that need, that person, that ugliness, to you and you could make it whole. So as we are in this moment of response, I just wanna encourage you to consider that the, the message and the miracle of Jesus is still for each one of us. And that Jesus comes in power, He comes in hope, He comes with incredible care to each one of our lives. Nothing has changed. He is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus, I just, pray right now that we would have an encounter with you that just readjusts, reminds, reframes our thinking about the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would see, see a new side of you. We would experience a new, a, new, a new angle of you as we roll up our sleeves and jump in to these portions of scripture that are just saturated with your miracles, saturated with your message, saturated with your hope, saturated with redemption. May we respond to that. May it affect how we live right now in 2023 in such a real way, in such a powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together.